0: This episode of Hot Possum Horror is brought to you by Friendly City Books, Columbus, Mississippi's independent bookstore. Learn more at FriendlyCityBooks.com. Y'all, this is Rachel with another episode of Hot Possum Horror. It is October, it is spooky season. We are all very excited. Um, With me today is Caroline. Hello, hello, Caroline. Hi, bunny. it never ends. It never ends. <laughs> um. So today's episode I'm very excited about because Caroline, this was actually your idea.
1: <laughs> Can um, you believe that I had an idea for a horror podcast? Who would have thought? <laughs> You're a bad influence on
0: me. No, <laughs> stop it. Um, <laughs> no. So today we are going to be talking about Uh, Latina horror. Specifically, we're going to talk about five uh, women authors from Latin America. Caroline, you have always enjoyed reading Latin American authors. And since I have gotten you reading horror, you have found
1: the horror genre. (laughs) Yes, it's the natural (laughs) next step, I guess.
0: And let me just tell y'all, there is some really amazing, creepy stuff being written by latin american authors it's amazing so i'm gonna let caroline kick us off and tell us why we need to be reading these books and why she really wanted to talk with us about this take it away caroline so
1: there is such a rich history of horror in latin america you see this not only in the horror genre of writing but you see it in horror movies as well I mean Guillermo del Toro is probably the most famous Latin American director yeah uh, who produces probably some of those beautiful gothic creepy amazing artistic movies out there so there is that kind of established legacy and I hope that the books that we can talk about today really highlight that legacy and are part of that legacy too because every single one of them is really special in their own way yeah but If we think about the horror genre as an outlet or an expression of cultural anxiety or trauma, I think that we can better understand the themes that we're going to be seeing in these Latin American horror books. And that comes from learning about the history of the places and the people behind these books. So the authors that we're going to be talking about today are Argentine and Mexican-American or Mexican-Canadian. Both Mexico and Argentina have intensely complicated histories and identities. And I am in no way an expert on either one of them. But I do think that doing our part to learn as much as we can, not only enriches our understanding of these books and authors, but it helps us to have more empathy as readers, you know, going into horror, not necessarily as voyeurs or thrill seekers for gore, but as people reading dark stories to see the humanity within them.
0: Yes. And I've I've said that from the get go. You know, I started reading horror, just as sort of the next general step in my reading journey. And it was, oh, the adrenaline, oh, the scares, but then very quickly found that, no, this is a very effective way to look at the world and explore very hard subjects. And it can be incredibly beautiful while it's very horrific.
1: Yeah. And at the risk of getting extremely dark, extremely early in this episode, I do kind of want to give an episode of that context that I'm talking about. And it is kind of this brief, but really traumatizing moment in Argentine history. It is the military dictatorship that they had between 1974 and 1983. So during this time, the military overthrew the Argentine government and they essentially spent the next decade using state sanctioned terrorism to control the people. The militants targeted Absolutely everyone and anyone that they felt was counter to their ideals. And there were so little checks and balances that essentially it really just became a state sanctioned killing for sport. They committed genocide against their own civilians, essentially like this was not a civil war. There was no opposition. These were civilians. They disappeared about 30,000 people, many of whom were thought to have been killed in mass executions or um, one of the more horrific Accounts that I had heard about was these death flights where the militants essentially drugged civilians, boarded them onto planes, flew them over the Atlantic Ocean and pushed them off the planes. Oh, my God. Literally the most horrific examples of crimes against humanity that you can imagine. And after the junta lost power, there was very little accountability for these militants. Uh, Very few were ever prosecuted for their crimes. So there's not really a lot of accountability. Mm -hmm. And the junta was financially supported by the United States until 1983. Oh, my. Yes. So in Argentine horror, you often have this sort of dystopian feel. And it often explores the power of the self and really explores distrust for institutions And often the boogeymen in these books are an invasion of agency or an invasion of privacy. And these transgressions are often committed by shadowy corporations, shadowy government entities, these sorts of ideas that are bigger than the self. Mm -hmm. And there's this very nihilistic vibe that the self is powerless against these entities and that humans as a collective are inherently evil. And when you look at even just this fractional piece of Argentine history, you can see why those themes exist in this literature. It is a processing of trauma. And I mean, this was happening into the 80s. Yeah. So when I say generational trauma, I mean immediate. Right. I mean living people who have, are survivors. So it's, it's really no surprise that these are the themes that we're exploring here.
0: Yeah, Exactly.
1: And again, I know that this is all very dark, (laughs) and maybe this is a bit of a darker episode of Hot Possum Horror. But it is Hot Possum Horror. Yeah. So. And in these books that we are going to talk about today, I tried to really make an effort to make not every single one of them absolutely terrifying and horrible, because also I struggle to read really tough horror sometimes, or maybe all the time. I do
0: too sometimes, believe it or not.
1: Yeah. But it, uh... So the way that I thought we should tackle our books that we want to talk about today and our recommendations for Latin American horror is borrowing your hot possum horror meter. All right. So we're going to have a book that's at a one, not so scary. And we're going to keep going all the way to five. Super, super scary. Yes. And I'm excited to explore these with you and talk about why we should be paying attention to Latin American horror and Also, these five authors that we're talking about today are not the extent of Latin American horror in any way, shape or form. These are five women horror authors that I really love and just am beyond excited to talk about. But if anyone out there is saying this is just scratching the surface, I know.
0: Yeah. Oh, there's so much more.
1: And come talk to me about it because
0: I want (laughs) to talk about it. But yeah. So how does that sound to you, Rachel? That sounds fantastic. I cannot wait to learn more. Um, I personally love when reading fiction leads me to learning more about the world, about history or science or what have you. So like, knowing the context of these books enriches the the reading experience. I, I feel, you know, like I'm learning more about these very important things that happen to these people. It's, it's valuable. Yeah. And I think we uh, should just dive into it with horror meter level one. We'll get through this together. (laughs) We will get through this together. All right. So let's dive in horror meter level one, Caroline, what is book number one?
1: Okay, so this one is Little Eyes by Samantha Schweben. So Samantha Schweben is a uh, Argentine author. This is translated by Megan McDowell. And the best way I can describe this book is techno horror. Ooh. But the horror side of it is more retrospective than it is truly like chilling or graphic or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Essentially, the basis of this book is that a company has made these Furbies. (laughs) And they're selling them throughout the world. And inside of these Furbies is a camera. And if you buy one of these little guys, they're called Kantuki's. Mm -hmm. And so you buy one of these Kantuki's, and you set it up in your house and you turn it on. And it is connected to an anonymous person somewhere else in the world.
0: Basically what we've all suspected Furbies of being this whole time. (laughs) Yes. Okay.
1: And so (laughs) you as a person can choose to either be a watcher who the person inside of the Kantuki is or you can be the watched the person (laughs) who keeps the cantuki and it's fascinating because at first people think of it as like a child's toy then people start buying them for their like older parents to keep them company and then the morbidly curious start kind of bringing them into their homes but In general, it becomes this idea of companionship Mm. and there is this slightly insulated factor of like, well, this is a completely random person anywhere in the world, which at first glance seems like it would be safer. Mm hmm. But people begin to cross boundaries with their Kantukis and form closer relationships or out of bounds relationships with their Kantukis or the Kantuki with them. And so the style of the book is fascinating because it it's kind of like these little vignettes and each chapter is in a different place of the world. And you're popping in and out of people's lives, either people who have Kantukis or people who are the Kantukis. And... You really get the sense of like how important this companionship is to people, but also how this dynamic is so quickly or easily abused by people. Mm -hmm. And it really escalates as the book goes on. But what's so interesting to me is that the technology is not necessarily the evil thing in this book. It is human nature that is the evil thing in this book. Right. And it's the humans who are abusing the technology.
0: Like give somebody a webcam. What are they gonna do?
1: Right. Yeah. And it's so fascinating the different dynamics of these people because Samantha Schweben does such a fantastic job of like exploring every avenue. Like a Kentucky who is watching her person that she loves so much and has such this deep connection with, be exploited by a creepy boyfriend, and how can she stop this creepy boyfriend? Because she's on the other side of the world. They don't have the same language. She couldn't call her if she wanted to. She couldn't message her. But then there's also like a gaggle of teenage mean girls who have a Kantuki who put their Kantuki on a Ouija board. And the thing starts buzzing around communicating with them. And it's this man who's like threatening them.
0: Oh. oh.
1: So you end up with all these different kind of dynamic. Hmm. But again, not super scary, but definitely one that's very introspective yeah and makes you really think in a cool way
0: yeah like it's unnerving enough to make you consider the technology that you do use now but it's not going to keep you awake at night yeah necessarily
1: and again it's the humans that are the problem yeah (laughs) that
0: sounds really cool and I I definitely want to read that very Mm. soon
1: it's really, really great. And it's it's a short little book, too. It's very mm-hmm. approachable, very accessible, which is not true for every book I'm going to talk about today. <laughs> so this is a great one as like maybe a starter horror if you've never tried like a techno horror before, yeah. but you don't also want to be like kept up at night by like ghosts in the machine or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Like, try this one. It's yeah. really fun.
0: And I, I have to say, I do love techno horror and I don't feel like I've read enough of it. Mm-hmm. It, it it doesn't seem to have permeated the genre quite as much as some of the other classic horror tropes, which is understandable. But I just get excited every time I hear about a really cool techno horror book.
1: <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed this. And I, I would love to find more techno horror, too, because it just it was really fun for me as somebody who also likes dystopian and sci fi mm-hmm. stuff. This was such a sweet spot for me.
0: Nice. Nice. All right. So book number two, which we are putting at horror meter Level two Mm -hmm. is, Carolyn,
1: The Hacienda by Isabel Cañas. Okay. The Hacienda is really a supernatural romantic suspense novel. Mm -hmm. Very kind of haunted house themed. But if I understand correctly, it is really inspired by uh, Daphne Dumas'
0: Rebecca. Okay. Yeah. Very gothic.
1: Yes. So you get that really gothic haunted house vibe that isn't dissimilar to Mexican gothic. Mm Mm-hmm. So this book is the story of this young woman named Beatriz. Her father is executed and her home is destroyed after the Mexican government is overthrown. This is in the 1800s and she is in a real pinch. She cannot inherit any of her father's money and her property is destroyed and she has to take care of her mother, essentially. So she finds this rich kind of suspicious guy (laughs) and is like, whatever, I'm going to marry you because then I'm going to be set and I'm going to be able to take care of my mom and myself. So she moves to his hacienda and It basically just takes off from there. This house is so gothic and so haunted and she's seeing skeletons falling out of the walls and there's these like rats with their like necks broken on the stoop and like all this stuff. And the guy has this creepy sister who just feels like she's in on it. So you just kind of get like thrown into this whole situation and it's fascinating to read and it just keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper. She has a priest come to the house to do an exorcism Mm -hmm. and it just goes off the rails. And the whole thing is just this wild ride of like, who is the bad guy here? Who can we really trust? And it is kind of that same slow burn vibe Mm -hmm. of like a Mexican Gothic, but when it starts ratcheting up it is a blast to just read through. So that's a good one. That's, you know, in that world of like, it's gonna be a little creepy. And there's moments that are like, Ooh, that's, you know, spooky. Yeah. But it's nothing that's going to ruin your life in any way, shape or form. Cool. And and I know we've talked about Mexican Gothic to death at this point. (laughs) So I will spare everyone from that. But like in that book, and like in Guillermo del Toro's work, you see so much of this kind of moody gothic exploration of what is under the surface of distrusting the the face value of mm. things scratching to find out what's underneath like these are all these kind of pervasive themes that we get to see in at least the Mexican horror that I have read and it's fun to kind of see those revisited and explored by different authors in different ways yeah and uh I really enjoy it
0: yeah, that sounds awesome. I mean, it also sounds like we're we're seeing a theme of women's rights. What, what? How do you work around limitations when you're in a bad situation? Right. And the idea that the place that is supposed to be your home is not safe. Right. You know, those kinds of things.
1: And also you once again see the failure of the institution to support the individual. Yeah. And the powerlessness of the individual with these greater entities that are more powerful than them. Yeah. Also,
0: I love the idea of skeletons falling out of the walls. That sounds amazing. <laughs> and like this book has already been on my list, but that is like, hell yeah, let me read this right now.
1: Oh my gosh. And I'm, <laughs> I've been listening to the audiobook and there's this creepy voice that echoes through the house and it's calling out the name Juana and it just the the narrator does such a fantastic job she just does this like whisper in the creepiest way she's like juana juana like all this like you know and you just i mean your skin is crawling yeah because you're just like oh my god juana get out girl like
0: (laughs) i'll be honest i tend not to listen to horror on audiobook because it's all i think it would be almost too immersive
1: it makes it worse yeah I am I I will sit here and say it 100% makes it worse (laughs) so but if you're into that kind of thing if you want to be really creeped out or like I always think of it as like I am driving at nighttime and I need to stay awake (laughs) I'm gonna listen to the scariest book I can find on audio that's a way to do it
0: (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah you're uh you're braver than me in that particular instance for sure it's
1: strategery okay yeah um so well you actually have read our number
0: three book so i'm gonna let
1: you introduce that one
0: okay so we have placed silver nitrate by sylvia moreno garcia at number three Mm -hmm. um we i think we briefly mentioned this in one of our past like tbrs for the fcb tbr episode
1: and it was one of our july
0: audiobook picks on listen up yeah so again we love sylvia Moreno garcia (laughs) love her amazing this book it is wonderful it's it's the slow burn like she tends to do at first you're getting historical and cultural context the first Hundred pages or so. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, you know, I did some Googling as I read to make sure I was understanding everything. And I don't mind that. I really like that. Um, And then once it gets going, Mm -hmm. it gets going. Um, So this book, Montserrat is Mm -hmm. the main character. She lives in Mexico City in the 90s. She's a sound editor for films. And her best friend, Tristan, is a former soap actor. And they end up befriending this director named Abel, Mm -hmm. um, who was famous for directing like two or three horror films back in the like 1950s and 60s. Um, And so Montserrat is really excited to meet him anyway. And then he tells them that he the last film that he worked on was never finished. It was supposedly a spell like the film and the sound and the dialogue and everything came together to cast a spell with audience participation, Uh so to speak. Um, But it was never finished. And he thinks that like not closing the circuit of the spell has given him bad luck throughout his life. And so he wants to finish the film. Um, So we are getting like some history and discussion of um, like Nazi occultist who came to Mexico City after World War II, mm-hmm. and how in this story one of them, you know, got involved in the film industry there and wanted to use silver nitrate film stock to help fuel this collective spell experience because he thought the audience energy that that they got and gave while watching the movie fueled the spell. It's it's really fascinating to like just talk about that part of it. Mm-hmm. And they do explore the ideas that this guy had. And I just think that part of it is really interesting all by itself. But then we're getting into, should they finish the film? Do they curse themselves and able even more by trying to finish the film? And you're getting... Ghosts popping up and it's just it's it's very atmospheric, Um, even though it's not like set in a gothic house. The vibe is still gothic in a way, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. It actually reminds me of one of my favorite books called The Book of the Most Precious Substance by Sarah Gran. It's a similar sort of search through occult history to work magic in the present day Mm -hmm. and you have this element of obsession like I have to figure out what's going on the character has to finish this process and it is just delicious
1: yeah for me the scariest part of silver nitrate was this like unknown quality I mean anytime you're getting like cult secret organization cursed nazi occultism obviously that's already like a lot of variables to be really creepy yeah but on top of all of that i think for me the question was like should they even be tampering in this should they yeah. just walk away <laughs> you know and their refusal to walk away mm-hmm. was so just like you're like screaming at the book to be like yeah stop turn around get out
0: Yeah, and like, Montserrat, the main character, like, she loves horror, she loves film horror movies, that's why she's like, she's a sound editor, and she, she would be interested in this kind of thing anyway. And she starts out very skeptical. She's like, I just want to get the history, maybe like, write a piece or do some film about it. But as she digs deeper into the mystery and the history, she starts to kind of believe it because they're seeing these crazy things happen it's so good yeah i mean obviously you know
1: as we've said we love sylvia Moreno garcia all of her stuff is fantastic
0: and i i think this one is safe to put at a, a level three because it, it definitely has creepy moments but wonderful for halloween season i mean it just came out so obviously they were thinking about that <laughs> with the production and it's it's just perfect yeah all right level four caroline i believe Mm. you read this one and uh i'm still not okay hashtag i'm sorry (laughs) (laughs) tell us about your trauma
1: (laughs) okay so number four hits the level four on the horror meter very strongly yeah It is Our Share of the Night by Mariana Enriquez. And this is also translated by Megan McDowell, who is the same person who translated Little Eyes.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Very nice. It's all coming together. (laughs) So I think this book really suffers from a summary on the back of it that does not actually represent what this book is about. Okay. Because on first glance, it kind of seems like it's the story of like a road trip. (laughs) And it is not. Okay. So. What this book is really about is this father and son who the the mother in the story dies. Mm -hmm. She is hit by a bus and drug like blocks down the street. Oh, my God. It's horrific. Right out of the gate. Right out of the gate. Man. (laughs) And so they are driving out into the countryside to go see her family. And as you're meeting people in her family, you are discovering that her family is part of this secret society that, speaking of Nazi occultism, yeah, yeah, is very occult. <laughs> and the father is essentially the medium for this cult. And they believe that he can summon this like shadow god that is this like malicious horrific god that blesses them yeah and they are incredibly wealthy they basically like own the town that they live in so they really can do whatever they
0: want and also not unlike mexican gothic in certain ways
1: yeah so the father though he is the medium for this cult he's very very reluctant he does not want to be a part of this he kind of was forced into it as a child you find out that he has a degenerating heart condition where he is dying at any moment and we find out that the family wants to do a spell that will have him take over his son's body and he does not want that to happen and so the rest of the book is just this escape. And so we get all of this. And then there's an abrupt shift in narrative. And the rest of the book is narrated almost exclusively by the son, Gaspar. Okay, And it goes across decades of time. Gaspar is growing up from a child to an adult. And he doesn't really understand why his father is the way he is, why his father doesn't want him to be around the mother's family. And meanwhile, he's growing up in this time period of the argentine dictatorship and he's seeing a lot of bad things as a child but also because he has kind of the magic of the medium like his father he's seeing ghosts he's seeing these like traumatized spirits who can't leave the mortal plane essentially and there is also a common theme in this book of child mutilation and torture and that is why i put this at a rock solid four because it is graphic and i mean okay the book is beautifully written beautifully written Mm -hmm. but it's also kind of this long winding tale and it's one of those things where like something absolutely horrible would happen and you would just be like this is horrific and then it would kind of go back to normal for a long time, like maybe a hundred pages of normalcy. And you would be like kind of lulled into this false sense of security. Oh, no. <laughs> and then the most horrific thing imaginable happens. And you're just like shocked and horrified. But then I'm like, why am I surprised? Yeah. But yet I am. And this continues to happen throughout the book. And I think that is kind of part of the story. Of always having to kind of be on guard as the reader, Mm -hmm. embracing yourself for the worst possible scenario. And when that doesn't immediately happen, letting your guard down a little bit and then being horrified all over again.
0: Yeah. That Um, makes sense.
1: And it's also a very long book. I listen to this on audio, and (laughs) if you only listen at one speed, It is 27 hours, so I recommend speeding it up. It's also narrated by Frankie Corzo, who is one of my favorite audiobook narrators. So it was a pleasure to listen to in that sense. Okay, But yeah, I I am still trying to process how I feel about this one, I think. So many of the others on this list, I feel like I have really concrete ideas about how I feel. Mm -hmm. And this one, I feel like the more I think about it, the more I... It's hard for me to express how I feel about this one.
0: Yeah. Which is usually the mark of a really good or great book. Yeah. Because it, it's, it's really making you dig through and and process.
1: Also, I wonder if I'm literally trying to like preserve myself by not thinking too hard about it. That's
0: true. I, <laughs> th- I, let's, let's throw in a, a very real trigger warning. If yes. you read this book, there is some really messed up stuff.
1: Like when I say child mutilation... If that does not horrify you, it will when you read it. Yeah. Like, it's rough. But then it's like this fascinating tale of a father and a son relationship where the son doesn't understand why his father keeps him so deeply in the dark. And this father who is so complicated and violent towards his son, but yet you know that the father is trying so hard to protect his son. And it's really this war between the internal needs of these people and there's a real humanity to it that is difficult to balance with the horrible things that also happen to characters in yeah. this book
0: which sounds like it might be part of the point you, yeah that that jarring disconnect is part of the horror and what makes it so effective so yeah definitely worth reading just be keep prepared. in mind yeah
1: <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's a solid four. And I don't say that lightly in any way, shape or form. This is probably like top three books for me all time of just level of gore and the amount of disturbing feelings I had while reading this. Yeah. So, I mean, keep that in mind. Well, that just brings us right on into level five. Let's make it worse. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me about our number five most horrific book on this list.
0: (laughs) So number five is Tender is the Flesh by Augustina Bastarica. And it's translated by Sarah Moses.
1: Oh, yes. This is a I'm not even kidding. This is like a Friendly City Books bestseller. Yeah. Every time we put a new copy of Tender is the Flesh out in the bookstore, it is Get snapped up instantaneously. Yes.
0: I had someone tell me today that they loved it. And I was like, I know. <laughs> um, but let me just say up front, this is one of the most messed up things I've ever read. Yes. But in the context that we're talking about, it makes sense. Yes. So Tender is the Flesh is a like near future dystopia in which a virus has swept through the entire just animal population of the earth Mm -hmm. allegedly and it is fatal to humans whether you eat the animal meat you get scratched bitten what have you boom you're dead so this results in like mass eradication of animals we're talking livestock wildlife pets Everything just about some wild animals survive, and so you've got curfews and people walking around with umbrellas so birds don't swoop down on them kind of thing it's eerily parallels some pandemic things that the world has experienced lately, which was very interesting to me but the the most significant thing that is that happens in the story as a result of the virus is what they call the transition because there is no more animal meat to eat the government legalizes special meat (laughs) can we guess what the special meat is no let me tell you it's people slaughterhouses start back up the whole same process except instead of cows for example it's people and they start off with like people people fully sentient conscious whatever people but then they start breeding people and keeping them totally isolated so that they don't mentally or emotionally develop and just treat them like animals they call them head like heads of cattle and it's there are elements of Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. You're getting this very clinical process of the slaughterhouse like every minute detail and it's the book is written beautifully which is so jarring with the horrific things that are being described which again is the point. Right. And so our main character Marcos is the like the right-hand man at this slaughterhouse. And he goes on what he calls meat runs to different places that are paying for meat that come out of the slaughterhouse. So he goes to a laboratory. He goes to a game reserve. He goes to a breeding center. And it's just it's so interesting how methodically it's laid out that this change affects pretty much every aspect of daily life, and it really makes you think about how our food processes affect every. Se- like, if you follow the logic out through all these tendrils, how much that shift would shift so many other things about the way we live that don't even necessarily have to do with food. And it's just, it is something else.
1: Yeah, I mean, I used to say that Earthlings was the most horrific thing I've ever read. And Tender is the Flesh is now the most horrific thing I've ever read. Yeah. It makes Earthlings look
0: like child's play. Earthlings is still like a good solid number second place. Yeah. But Earthlings has an odd hopefulness at the end. There's a sense of like the character taking back agency. Yes. Tender is the Flesh is... The absence of agency. Yeah. It's... um, It is depressing and nihilistic And you are going to need a hug after you're done. (laughs) I need a hug and I'm only halfway through. Like it's it it is one that just so you know, if you're having a hard time already, maybe wait on this one just just a little bit.
1: Yeah. I mean, I cannot stress to you how graphic this book is. Yeah. Like truly, truly horrific in its gore, but also in its lack of humanity. Yes. And how much you as the reader are forced to look that dehumanization in the eye and bear mm-hmm. witness to it.
0: Yeah. Pulls no punches at all.
1: So for anyone out there who doesn't know, there is a website called does the dog dot com. And it started out as a place where you could go on the internet to see if a dog died in a movie so that you knew whether or not you wanted to watch it. And since then, it has developed into this kind of content warning space Mm -hmm. where it answers a tremendous array of questions about triggers and content so that if you have certain things that you don't feel comfortable reading about or watching, you can know going in. Yeah. And when you look up Tender is the Flesh... On does the dog Die.com. It is pretty much a yes on every single content warning and trigger they offer. Yeah. We went through it last night together and <laughs> we were just like, does this horrible thing happen? Absolutely. Yes. Does that happen? Oh, it happens like 12 times. Like non-stop. Yeah. This is the most rock solid horror level five book I can possibly ever yeah. think of. And yet I think it has so much value. Mm -hmm. And it is so incredibly thoughtful and intentional and smart.
0: It is an excellent, excellent book. Like, I will think about this book forever. Mm -hmm. It's one that everyone should read. Mm -hmm. It's just
1: horrific. It is. And I mean, size wise, it's very approachable as well. Like it's a pretty quick read. I read it in a day. But then you're going to need a long time to process afterwards. So make sure you pencil that into your calendar as well as your reading time.
0: I would actually say much like Earthlings, which I also read in about one sitting, because once it got into it, I was like, I just need to finish this. Yes. And it was short enough that I could. This was the same way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I wouldn't necessarily recommend drawing it out.
1: (laughs) Yeah. But there's just when I say like thoughtfulness, I don't mean like tenderness. I mean, like intentional thought-provoking conversations inspired by this book. Yes. I mean, there are conversations about class and privilege and race and who is human. Mm-hmm. There is a eugenics element to it. Like you said, there's a jungle element to it. It's gnarly, but it is really, really thought-provoking in yeah. a fantastic way.
0: Yes, it, it is fantastic. And it it explores areas, like we said, not only how... This one change in our food supply affects everything, but it also gets into a little bit the idea that once you make this, once you make cannibalism permissible, once you make it legal, how far will people go if they know they can?
1: Yeah, because for as much as this is like state sanctioned and controlled and like the the slaughterhouse that they're in is like, we have to be so above board. There is a real pervasive gray area in this book where, you know, there's scavengers hunting for any human meat that they can get their hands on. There's an interesting humanity question here, too. Yeah. Where the people who were alive for the transition, some of them have really embraced the transition and are like very pro quote unquote special meat Mm -hmm. and then others who struggle so much with the ethical dilemma of it and stomaching it and the ability to separate themselves from the humanity of these people that are being consumed. Mm -hmm. But then you have the second generation. You have the generation that is born after the transition and all they know is a world without animals where some humans are human and other humans deserve to be eaten. Yeah. And the cruelty of specifically those children that we see
0: in this book is chilling. Yes, like th- don't go to sleep around these kids. Yeah, kind of like they're because... like, ha, ha,
1: I wonder how Uncle Marcos would taste. It's like what? Yeah, yeah, no, and they mean it. They're like dead serious. Yeah. They want to know how Uncle Marcos would taste.
0: <laughs> and you're and you're getting like with almost every character you meet too. You you get this just unbelievable hypocrisy that they have compartmentalized because there are still things like in this society that are considered horrific. Like, you know, if, if one of their coworkers gets murdered and eaten on the street, oh, that's terrible. He, he was so young, you know, he was a person. Yeah. He was, he, he didn't deserve this. This coming from someone who works in the slaughterhouse and would just absolutely kill a hundred head as they would say without a second thought yeah so it's like the compartmentalization of these characters to to survive yeah in their society because if they don't participate it's like what happens to them
1: right and even marcos our main character is not a saint. He is kind of our um, Sancho Panza, where he is guiding us through this world, inviting us to question what we're seeing. But then at the same time, he is still a product of this world. And he does things where suddenly... You as the reader are listening to the things that he's doing and red flags are coming up everywhere. Yeah. And you're saying, whoa, man, you might be marginally better than some of these people, but you are not without fault yourself. Yeah. And it's really fascinating to see a story crafted in this way where the greater theme of right or wrong is so clear. Like, yeah. Institutionalized, industrialized cannibalism is horrific and wrong yeah but then when you actually look inside of the society and look at these individual people there are so many layers Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of gray area in this weird uncomfortable disgusting way that really forces you as a reader to reckon with what you're reading
0: yeah and like except for just one or two characters like all of them are very clearly human like people that you would know like you've got his sister and you see their dysfunctional dynamic but it's clear that she is a person and you you can't hate her because you you could know a relative or a friend who's a lot like her and you know so you're you're getting all these people that are not painted as bad people but they are participating in this really messed up horrific thing and it's just It's fascinating and awful.
1: Like you have characters talking about who's going to take care of dad because he has Alzheimer's Mm -hmm. and they're having this conversation over a family dinner
0: of human kidneys. Yeah. Or fingers at one point. Ugh. yeah.
1: That's just, you know, that's the part where it's just this bizarro world where it's so close to what we know. Mm -hmm. But yet there's this element that just perverts
0: everything. Yeah. And it I mean, it twists your gut. Yeah. Really. It is, it is so shocking.
1: But there's also that idea, that callback to what I was saying before about, you know, this is an Argentine author who comes from this history in Argentina. And what does this story say about the processing and conceptualization and exploration of human nature? Mm -hmm. You know, if humans are so willing to revoke humanity from some Mm -hmm. rather than others, then what does that say about human nature and what does that say about us as a community versus an individual and like all of these questions. And I think that that's why, you know, when I start this podcast out with like, let me tell you about this horrible (laughs) thing that happened. Like this book is really why I wanted to make sure that we talked about that because I see so many parallels in this idea of like death planes but then you're reading these things that they're doing to these people and if you can separate humanity from a person what are you capable of doing to them yeah exactly it's such a dark thing to talk
0: yeah and you just kind of have to take a pause i mean having said all that it is one of the best just the best books i have ever read because it is just So well written, so well crafted, so effective. Mm -hmm. And what it's trying to do like it is, again, it's one that everyone needs to read. Yeah. Just prepare yourself.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Like maybe don't make this your first ever horror book.
0: No, no. Work up to it. (laughs) Like I'm
1: glad that I waited until I had a strong kind of early basis in horror before picking this book up because I think I could have read it and appreciated it and understood the purpose of it. Mm -hmm. But I think having that exposure to the genre helped me contextualize what I was reading rather than just being horrified
0: by it. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, for me, having read enough horror to be not totally desensitized, but enough, like you said, prepared enough that you can... Give yourself just a smidge of emotional distance so you're not just throwing the book across the room. Mm -hmm. Also, the voice of the writing being so calm and clinical. Yes. While it is very jarring with the context, also, I think, helps calm you, which Mm -hmm. is ironic given how they talk about the process in the slaughterhouse of calming the meat, the people, Yes. before oh, they God. stun them it's yeah it's it's a lot
1: <laughs> yeah and I mean we also you know we're we're sitting here talking about the idea of having to emotionally separate yourself a little bit in order to process what we're we're reading it actually reminds me I was talking to Thomas Richardson today and he was talking about Upton Sinclair's the jungle oh and how people read the jungle and he had written it. With the intention of being an expose on horrific labor practices Mm -hmm. and the abuse of the people who were working in these factories. Mm -hmm. But what people were actually horrified by was the conditions in which their food was being processed.
0: Oh, my God.
1: And that is like the birth of the FDA came from the jungle, essentially, and this kind of reaction that the public had. And uh, what Thomas was saying was that Upton Sinclair had this quote afterwards saying, when I wrote The Jungle, I aimed for people's hearts, but I hit their stomach. Yeah. And because people were separating themselves from the people in the story and not connecting with them and relating to them and being able to say, well, that's separate from me. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to focus on the part of this that affects me, Yeah, which is that I might be eating a contaminated whatever. Yeah. And I think that one of the really cool things about Tender is the flesh. And because there is this gray line that exists within this book about who is human Mm -hmm. and who is consumed, it can always be you. Yeah. It forces you
0: to be right there in the middle of it.
1: Right. And like when this whole state sanctioned cannibalism started, It started with, she says, it began with immigrants and impoverished people. Yes. And that is who they first took and how people were okay with that. Mm -hmm. People were like, oh, you cleaned up the community. Huge red flag to begin with. Yeah. And then when it was time that they needed more people, that was when they started breeding people. Yeah. Because there's a certain people that have to be kept separate mm-hmm. in order for this
0: system to succeed. Yeah. And they they, they don't even view them as people. Exactly. It's mm. I, I could go on and on <laughs> about all the detail in this book because I have been thinking about it nonstop. One other thing I found really interesting about Tender is the Flesh is it, it was a very ominous feeling to sort of read this story and think about life in the U.S. now and sort of have that realization of, oh, you can sort of see how it could slide into something much, much worse. Yeah. And so that that really struck me.
1: Yeah, it definitely carries a lot of parallels or would be an interesting companion read with Sinclair Lewis's It Can't Happen Here, Hmm. which was a very early dystopian American literature kind of novella that came out in the thirties about what if in 1930s America, a dictator took hold, Oh, he was seeing fascism take root in Europe. And he kind of looked at America and said, you know, the idea, the assumption is that, Oh, this could never happen here. I Mm -hmm. would never fall for a cult. I would never be a part of a horrific system or institution, but it can happen. Yeah. And it, often does happen Mm -hmm. and that i think is again that inherent theme and thought process Mm -hmm. of the power of the individual and that kind of nihilistic thought that maybe we are not as strong or capable as we think we are yeah and i know that's like almost a it's almost counter to the American perspective or this Mm -hmm. American idea that we are all just like our own individualistic superheroes or, you know, that kind of just like American pluck. Yeah. One of the reasons that I love reading stories that come from other places in the world is because there is that switch in perspective and that kind of that assumption disappears and you get to this like philosophical heart of so many different stories. And I think that Perhaps maybe that nihilism is what plays so well into horror in Latin America and why these stories speak so much to us Mm -hmm. in present day.
0: Yeah, and that's an interesting point that in America, we don't necessarily grow up with that nihilism just as, as an accepted part. We're sort of conditioned to be positive.
1: Maybe... We have gaslit ourselves as Americans to think that we can overcome anything if we just push ourselves hard enough and that if we are just positive enough and try hard enough.
0: Yeah, like and I'm not saying that everybody thinks that way, but it seems like the collective cultural mindset generally is that more just do it. You can do anything. It's going to, you know, and so reading something that. Does not end on that hopeful note mm-hmm. that is just bleak is so jarring to us because that's not generally how our culture looks at things.
1: Right. Or anything that's even just brave enough to acknowledge the the trauma and, and anxiety of.
0: Yeah. And just looking at it dead on without sugarcoating or trying to put any sort of spin on it just this is what it is exactly yeah which again it's, it would be re- so valuable for us to read <laughs> yeah and,
1: and that is why I am so hardcore in the bookstore about reading from other perspectives reading different lived experiences than your own Getting out of your comfort zone, trying different things, trying different genres, mm-hmm. trying different styles of voice and storytelling, trying books from different parts of the world—like you have no idea how much you can learn until you break out of that shell and take that first step into mm-hmm. the unknown.
0: Yes, and it's—I I mean, I, this may sound cliche—it's never too late. Like, yeah, you can. Say I've been a reader my whole life and I've only read this one genre. That's OK. Still try something else. I mean, look at me. I'm reading
1: horror for the first time. Yeah. And I'm not dead yet. Exactly. <laughs> I might be a little more traumatized, <laughs> but we're still having these wonderful conversations yeah. and thinking these sorts of, you know, having these introspective moments where we're growing and learning as humans and becoming more empathetic and understanding the world
0: in a, in a more impactful way yes exactly since i've started reading horror i think i have thought more profoundly because of the things i've read than just about any other genre yeah
1: and i see that now you know as somebody who started out being like i don't know i don't i don't enjoy this kind of like horrific exposure i think understanding that it's not necessarily about the shock and awe yeah was such a revelatory thing for me. Yeah. And I've been able to really get deep and learn so much because I've gotten past that.
0: Yay. I'm so glad. I'm <laughs> like, honestly, I I love Halloween. I love horror. I love the fun sort of fluff part of horror that's shock and awe and just, ew, that's gross. But like, honestly, seeing you or, or somebody say, you know, I understand the value of this. Like, that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. I, I get it.
1: <laughs> I am a believer. Yay. But yeah. And then also just to uh, come back from the most horrific thing we collectively have ever read. Yeah. If tender as the flesh is too much for you, if our share of the night is too much for you, <laughs> if you are somebody who wants to dip your toe into Latin American horror, there is a fantastic anthology called Our Shadows Have Claws, 15 Latin American Monster Stories. It is edited by Yamil Saeed Mendez and Amparo Ortiz. And this is just a fantastic collection of stories by authors from all over Latin America that focus on horror in all sorts of different ways. Whatever you're looking for, This anthology is gonna have something for you. And I think that this is a great jumping off point because I think once you read this, you're gonna think, Oh, I can go pick up little eyes. Oh, maybe it's time for me to try Tender as the Flesh, you know. (laughs) And that's what we're trying to do here. Yeah. Is just encourage
0: anyone out there to pick up one of these books and enjoy it. And tell us about it. Look, if you read Tender as the Flesh or Our Share of Night, and your life is forever changed in questionable ways please tell us we want to know but also if you need a hug yeah like we can be your support group i'm not a hugger and
1: neither are you yeah but we will make an exception if you read tender is the flesh because we told you to (laughs) and you need a hug
0: it is the least i can do maybe we should make a discord channel (laughs) that is tender is the flesh support group
1: (laughs) i have been personally victimized (laughs) by tender is the flesh
0: Speaking of, we do have a Discord now.
1: We do have a bookstore Discord that even has its very own Hot Possum Horror sub-server or channel. And (laughs) we're still new with this. Yeah, (laughs) But I really want people to join it so that we can talk about the things that we talk about in these episodes and read these books together and have fun with it. And also, we can just grow together and read together and have fun.
0: Yeah. So feel free to talk to us on there. Tell us if you loved a book. Tell us if you... We'll never sleep again. <laughs> We're excited. We're trying to keep up with the youths. Yes. With the discord. Dare, so.
1: dare to be relevant. <laughs> um, so with all that being said, I think I have earned the time to read a cozy witchy
0: romance after all of this. <laughs> Agreed. I need to go find the coziest, happiest book and just dive right into it. <laughs> and I don't need breaks from horror that often. However, I need a palate cleanser, no pun intended, after Tinder is the flesh. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you, Caroline, for braving these books. (laughs) I love you, and I'm sorry, but thank you. (laughs) I mean, technically, I did it to myself on this one. Yeah, you did.
1: So thank you for giving me the opportunity to explore this little world (laughs) that I have found myself in. Well.
0: We will comfort each other. We, we have gotten through it. We will survive. We will go read cozy witchy romances. Together. Together. Well, this has been Hot Possum Horror. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading. This episode of Hot Possum Horror was produced and hosted by Rachel DeReese and co-hosted by Caroline Barbie. Music is by Hartle Road. Hot Possum Horror is part of the Friendly City Books podcasting network.
1: Hey there, it's Caroline. Thanks for listening. Support Friendly City Books and other independent bookstores like us by shopping online at bookshop.org and libro.fm. Find us on social media at Friendly City Books. And don't forget to like and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Happy reading!